This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Today marks 75 years since the liberation of the notorious Auschwitz death camp, where 1.1 million people, the vast majority of them Jews, were slaughtered by the Nazis. It was the laboratory for the industrial scale of mass murder perpetrated by the Nazis as they implemented the final solution their plan to exterminate all Jews. They ended up killing six million. This anniversary comes as the numbers of survivors are rapidly dwindling and there is a disturbing resurgence of anti-Semitism around the world. We are fortunate to have two survivors joining us to share their personal stories. Also, here is Michelle Schlesinger. She is the Senior Human Rights Liaison, and that is the League for Human Rights of Nabrith, Canada. Hi, Michelle. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, what is the significance of this anniversary today? Well, this is an opportunity, uh, Libby, to commemorate and remember, to honor uh, those victims of the Holocaust and the survivors, a genocide of huge proportions involving six million Jewish men, women, and children who were murdered uh, for no other reason other than that they happened to be Jewish. And it's very, very important for us to remember this so that we can ensure that this never happens again. As a result, we have to snuff out anti-Semitism in the smallest and the largest of forms. And it's an opportunity for us uh, to 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 deal with Holocaust education and Holocaust denial. That's very, very important here. So again, we have to make sure it doesn't repeat itself. Uh, and this sort of hatred is truly a, a threat to our democracy. This kind of hatred affects our, our society and affects the underlying um, fabric of our society, I would say. Michelle, uh, there is a big ceremony in Poland today at the site of Auschwitz-Birkenau, and many people believe that this might be the very last big one because of the age of survivors. Right. Um, that's why it becomes so important. Holocaust remembrance is essential to combat combat, pardon me, Holocaust denial, uh, which is regularly used uh, by the far, far right. Uh, they rather absurdly claim, Libby, that Jews are lying about the Holocaust, uh, that we're just making it up to extract some sort of reparations. And then you have elements instead of the far left, uh, which uh, uh, trivialize the Holocaust. They suggest it's not all that unique and that Israel is supposedly perpetrating a Holocaust. So when you have all this false information out there, this miseducation and false information, it's incumbent on us now more than ever before, as you say, when there are fewer and fewer Holocaust survivors, fewer and fewer people to explain about the Holocaust, it really behooves us to be involved in strong educational efforts to combat Holocaust denial. Okay. Do you have any idea of the numbers of survivors who are left? 
I, I don't know how many survivors per se are left. It's obviously a dwindling number, uh, and uh, this definitely makes, makes our task harder, as I was saying, in combating anti-Semitism, because we've got such a proliferation of lies and such a proliferation of false information that is flooding the Internet, Libby. Um, it's just tremendous. It's, it's coming out in, in uh, it, Facebook and Twitter and retweets and emails um, in, in uh online forums um, so without those survivors there to help remind us all of our history uh, we've got an even harder job uh, in th- th- that faces us to combat uh, Holocaust uh, denial. Okay I'm going to Nate Leipzinger who is a survivor of Auschwitz. Nate can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. And, and Nate, first of all, how are you? I would imagine that a day like today brings it all back for you. Yes, it's a day of very bad memories. It's uh, bad memories, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, it's a bad memory for our post-Holocaust uh, family because uh, a year ago this uh, today, we were, uh, you know, um, our daughter Rhonda was on her deathbed. She died only hours later, and of course, uh, the the era of uh, Auschwitz is over, and uh, that brings back memory, very many, many uh, memories. Because uh, I was uh, in a concentration camp, and two days before, we were forced on a death march, and we were walking in uh, uh, sub-zero weather, and uh, people were dying on their feet or being shot or lagging behind, and our future was very much in suspense after months and months of uh, concentration camp and uh, you know, confrontation of hunger, death, miseries, and we were still uh, walking the road to an unknown destination. And so these memories come all back. And, uh, you know, 75 years has gone by, and uh, much has happened in my, my, my life and the life of all survivors. We are getting to an era, uh, in, uh, in an era of post-Holocaust survivors' time. Um, Nate, us- can you tell me um, how you came to be at Auschwitz? From w- what happened, how were you taken by the Nazis, and yes. how long Thank were you, you there for? Okay, so we were in August the second, nineteen forty-three. We we were forced into a railroad car, which ended our civilian life, our life as family. And, uh, and even so, we were in a ghetto. We still have freedom to move around. We were together with our family. The minute we entered the boxcar on our way to Auschwitz, we did not know where we were going. But at that time, our family, within a minute we got off the car, our family was destroyed. My mother and my sister were went one, one way. My father and I went the other way. And my father rescued me from a lineup that went directly to the gas chamber only minutes later and uh, I was, how did he uh, do that well he he approached a nazi officer and told him that uh, uh he has a son here who is uh, 17 years old even so i was 15 and that i was an electrician which was true and he convinced the nazi to uh, take me from one line to the other 
And uh, so there, you see, uh, we are confronted with the fact that the Nazis who were doing this terrible job were also human beings who were subject to emotional understanding of a father's plea, and they allowed me to move from one line to the other. And, and, and so we... right at the beginning, your father knew that this lineup were people who were going to be immediately killed? He, I, I, whether he knew or not, he knew he understood that being with the young people, which he was with, was be more advantageous than being with uh, old men and young boys. So he must have known, or he sort of anticipated, and I, I expect my parents must have known that this was the end of our existence as a family, because my mother instructed us to meet after the war, and her mother's neighbor, uh, of those who survived. So this was obviously a a time of uh, uh, not no knowledge to me, but maybe knowledge to my parents. And uh, uh, minutes later, I became a number. Instead of a human being, I became a a number. What work did you have to do in the camp in order to survive? Well, we were, the most important thing was to get out of Auschwitz, which again, through my father's intervention and also through another Nazi uh, agreeing to let me go, we left Auschwitz for a concentration camp of Großrosen, a sub-camp of Großrosen Commando Camp, which was Fünfteichen. And there we were, 650 Jewish men, uh, among uh, 3,000 of non-Jewish uh, prisoners. Most of them were Polish Polish prisoners, political prisoners. And uh, later on, we were joined by 3,000 of uh, Jewish prisoners. So that became a 50-50 situation where we no longer were a minority. But we worked in the Krupp factory, uh, an armament factory, producing big cannons for the ships. And uh, we survived because we were useful to the German, to the Nazi war machinery. So how long were you in Auschwitz altogether? We were 12 weeks in Auschwitz. The limit, when they told us that when we got there, they told us you have 12 weeks, so four months maximum, to get out of Auschwitz or you get out to the chimney. Wow. And, and who was it that told you that? There was a couple that uh, gave us a lecture after we were uh, tattooed and they were, we were disinfected and our hair was removed and then we were given a lecture and they said, and you, this, is, this is not a summer camp, this is a concentration camp and if you don't behave, you're going to join your family who are being now processed by gassing to death. And this was this was remember this was information that I received of at, at the age of fifteen, and how do you how do you process that? How mentally how do you process that that your family and your members of your immediate family are being gassed to death for nothing but the fact that they were born Jews? Wow, it, it's it's almost too much to process. Uh, and you came to Canada in nineteen forty eight. Is that right? Correct. The same year my family came to Canada. Pardon? I said the same year my family came to Canada, 1948. 
Right. Uh, Moses was your your father. Is your father? N- no, he's my much older brother. Oh, okay. my my family was not in a concentration camp. They were fortunate not to be in a concentration camp. They were in the Soviet Union during the war. Hard enough. Um, right. Nate right. Leipzinger, um, what is the core of your message to people on this anniversary of the liberation? The core message is that the that the responsibility to remember and to fight anti-Semitism, bigotry, and racism is now going on to the to the on the shoulders of our children and our grandchildren and the general population because. Anti-Semitism is only a forerunner to destruction of millions of people. Remember that the Nazis killed six million Jews, but in the process of killing six million Jews, 30 million people lost their lives. So, you know, anti-Semitism is not only hurtful to us, but it is a, is a forerunner and a situation which must be prevented in order to save the world. Okay, Nate Leipzinger, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Today marks the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the notorious Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp. We have been talking to Auschwitz survivor Nate Leipzinger, and now I would like to bring in Dr. Renata Krakauer, also a Holocaust survivor. Dr. Krakauer, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, uh, first of all, how are you doing today? I would imagine that this brings back some very bad memories. Well, first of all, I my connections are not with Auschwitz. Yes, I know. Second of all, I'm a Holocaust baby, so thank God I don't have memories of the Holocaust. But I was born at the time when there were one and a half million Jewish babies, of whom only a handful survived. So my mother used to call me her miracle baby. And that does bring back memories of my parents and what they went through and uh, the miraculous uh, events that managed to bring me here to this day when I'm still around and enjoying my life, you know. So it's, it's amazing. I was just thinking while you were talking to Nate Leipziger, my parents were, and this is how I talk to, to young people, too, they were just a young professional couple who, during the Depression, couldn't find jobs. But in 1939, when the rest of Poland was engulfed by the Nazis, the uh, Soviet Union were their occupiers. And the Soviet Union, my parents thought, hey, they'll protect us. It's strong. They have a strong army. And they got jobs. And things were looking up, and so they got married and they had a baby. And that's where my story starts. Okay, Five so... Five months before the Nazis invaded our part of Poland. Okay, so where where were you in Poland, and, and how did you manage? How did your, how did your well, parents manage to keep you safe? I was born in a, in a town or a small city called Stanisławów, which was in the southeast part of Poland. It was called Galicia in once upon a time. And now it's the southwest part of Ukraine and it's called Ivano-Frankivsk. There's a city of about 75,000 population. About a third of them were Jews. 
And after the war, maybe 100 survivors. And those that survived were mostly those who were smart enough to escape to the Soviet Union. Like um, my parents did. Oh, did they? Yep. Well, there you go. That life was not easy, as you said earlier, but at least they survived. My parents, my, I said to my parents, why didn't you go? Well, they did have a chance. My father was on the way to going, and then he realized my mother would be all alone with the baby, and he came back. He said, I can't leave you alone. Well, the Nazis came in in August of um, 41, and uh, they started implementing all the laws that you know about. And in October uh, 26, they had a massive action. They marched 12,000 Jews to the what they called the New Jewish Cemetery, where there were huge pits, and they shot them systematically, row by row, told them get undressed, and you know and they shot them row by row. There's a, a, a I always uh, like to give reference to Father Patrick Desbois, the priest who has written Holocaust by Bullets, and he has shown how many. Jews were killed by the Nazis right in their towns and villages because they couldn't, they, they, they didn't have enough uh, resources to uh, transport them all to death camps. Now, a lot of the Jews from my city were transported to Belzec. That was the closest. But a lot were just killed in, first of all, that first action and regular actions right in their in their streets. We were all forced into a ghetto with six-foot walls, and the ghetto was systematically made smaller. Now, my parents were not, and I were not taken to that first action, miraculously again, because we didn't live in a Jewish neighborhood. But we ended up in the ghetto. There were like three families to, uh, to an apartment. And my parents witnessed regular acts of brutality, especially among babies who they were flung against the wall, heads smashed like watermelons, or uh, impaled on a on a uh, you know the, the, a spike on a spike. Or it was uh, they were horrendous, and, and people died of starvation, of typhus. Um, and there was no basic sanitation or any food. And if you wanted food, you had to go outside the ghetto to barter with the local population. So both my parents managed to get on the slave labor, which was just outside the ghetto. The Germans ran quite an economy there. My father was in the um, scrap metal sorting uh, yard, and my mother was in the clothes sorting yard where they sent the clothes to to Germany and the metal for the war uh, uh, machinery. And uh, she would be able to get some food, but she said when she would have her her my father's cousin's wife, who also had a little baby in there, she looked after both of us, and my mother caught her feeding her child the food that she left for me, and my mother didn't blame her. The children were starving. My mother said she would look at me so skinny and sad, you know, as I waited for her. And she realized after about a year in the ghetto, as 
it was being decimated, that things looked pretty grim. And mothers, I think, were the greatest heroes of the Holocaust. They took all kinds of risks and chances to save their children. She um, found out from her cousin, who was a capo at the gate, and uh, he was killed later, too, um, that it wasn't, you know, they were planning to uh, destroy the whole ghetto, so get that child out of here. So my mother sneaked out behind his back with me wrapped up in a comforter, and she ran. She managed to uh, find the neighbor's house where she stayed and got in touch with a, a maid from her brother's house who lived in a village nearby, and she took me to... That woman took me to her sister, who was a very poor peasant woman. She was a widow with two little boys. And she kept me there for a year and a half, and I was like their little little daughter. They uh, very treated lucky. me very, they very well. They, they would have been in, in massive danger if it was found out that they uh, were... Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, people in the village probably knew I was Jewish, too, uh, but I was blonde and blue-eyed, and um, and they took me to church every Sunday. And um, and as my my parents, my mother later had to come. She had to uh, run away from the ghetto too. She escaped because I was very sick, and they knew my mother was a pharmacist. They figured she could help make me get over the sickness. And then my father eventually escaped from the scrapyard. They kept some people at the end who were useful to them. The Nazis were very, very clever because they still needed these people. But my father saw the signs going up, you know, Judenrein, and they had uh, got rid of you know everybody they could means, except a few people, which means yeah, free cleaned of out of Jews. Yeah. No more Jews. Okay. I, and so uh, he ran. I'd just like to bring in for a second Michelle Schlesinger. So I think uh, that is something that a lot of people are also not necessarily aware of. It's just how bad the conditions were, not just in concentration camps, but outside as well. Oh, and the ghettos. Mm-hmm. Yes. Michelle? Uh, absolutely. It, uh, it was a matter of escalating hate. It started... Yeah as she's describing, or others here have described now, uh, Nate Leipzinger and, and Dr. Krakauer, um, as, as racist policies, as uh, uh, ghettos that have been described, as violence, and then eventually, um, quote-unquote, I guess, professional extermination camps. Uh, so, so we're talking about, and these people are describing eyewitness accounts of horrendous, unspeakable brutality and atrocities. Um, we this this speaks to why we have to educate and counter the the uh, misinformation that's coming out there online in droves. That's a huge task that we have in front of us because, as as you've said, Libby, the number of survivors unfortunately is is becoming less and less. So our job becomes harder and harder. And but we're, we will undertake it, and we continue to undertake it. And uh, there is. Is this urgent need, of course, to combat anti-Semitism, including this uh, business of Holocaust denial? Uh, Dr. Krakauer, what do you think when you see the resurgence of anti-Semitism basically all around the world? Well, you know, it just makes me sick. I think 
I grew up in Canada. I lived in Montreal for the first few years when we, we came in 48 also, and then in Toronto. And, and I just was never, I, you know, I used to roll my eyes when my parents would, and luckily they told me the stories, but, you know, they were just stories. And then I started to see this stuff, and I think, you know, it could happen anywhere, anytime. And not like somebody like Nate mentioned, and it is happening to other minorities. It's uh, we Jews, like if it starts happening to Jews, it starts happening, it's happening to other people too, because it's, it's when people start to look at other human beings as not fully human. They are, they are animals. They are things. We don't have to recognize their humanity. And then terrible things start to happen. And anti-Semitism is part of that huge re, uh, refusal to look at the other as a fellow human. So... Um this is uh, this is obviously one of the last big commemorations of the liberation of Auschwitz. Uh, what do you hope happens to keep the memory alive? Well, I'm a, uh, an educator, so I fully uh, believe that one generation, you know, has to educate the next. And um, that's what I, I think is the most important thing. We have to, we can't we can't just let things slip by. Um, we have to educate, and it is on, on all levels. Whether it's uh, and I'm working with a group now at uh, OISE, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, to try to work on on that whole process of trying to get education into the teacher's hands, into educators' hands, so they can do it properly when they, and broadly with students. And then there's so many people who speak from the various groups like the Holocaust Center and the Azraeli Foundation, and we have to continue to do that. And when, they, and when these, the people start dying out, who they are, I think the next generation has to pick up the torch. Michelle? Uh, yes, I think it's a matter definitely of education, but at the same time, we have to stop the proliferation of hate. So it's both yeah. things happening at the same time or that need to happen at the same time. We have to stop these people who are preaching hateful views, doing so in print, doing so online. And then you're right. I believe uh, 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 this person is right, uh, uh, obviously, because we need educational efforts. B'nai B'rith uh, Canada uh, has its eight-point plan which includes um, a national action plan against anti-Semitism. And that, for example, includes the adoption of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance uh, definition of anti-Semitism. That's tremendously important. It's been uh, adopted by Canada and other countries, but now it's time to implement it at all levels of government because it allows for a common language. It allows us to identify anti-Semitism when we see it. That's very, very important that we have a common definition. It's an important starting point. And, I agree. Uh, Dr. Krakauer, we only have a few seconds left. What would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I think that uh, people need to be more aware 
of their own attitudes and actions and uh, and call out anti-Semitism when they see it in their everyday lives, you know, even if it's just a little thing. You can't just say, oh, well, he didn't really mean it. She doesn't really know what she's saying. I think we really need to be aware and to speak out. Okay. Dr. Renata Krakauer, Holocaust survivor, and Michelle Schlesinger, thank you so much for being with us on this very important anniversary. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.